Everybody back in here. Let's round it up. So today is actually week three of my sermon arcs. If you feel like you missed one, you probably did because I didn't preach it here at ABF. But you can find it online, so check it out. This month, we are talking about investing in others. Another way that we could um, <clears throat> say that is caring for others. How it is that we care for others. And I'm going to try to be respectful yet quick of the subject material because we did start kind of late. Um, so last week, we just we talked about investing in others uh, and the mindset that we're on. And this week I told you that we were going to talk about what a loving mindset is in regard to caring for others. So that's what we're going to talk about. How do we love those that we are investing in? And so again, last week when we were talking about that, we talked about the first step is the mindset of restoration. You guys remember that? That we are to have a restorative mindset and not a creative mindset because ultimately it is God who creates. He already created. He has a purpose for us. And that purpose, let's not say it's been marred, but we as human beings have been marred. We do not reflect accurately who God made us to be because of a little something that we call sin. And so because of that, our responsibility in caring for others is not to create them into who we want them to be or to free them to create themselves in who they want to be, but instead to restore them to who God wanted them to be in the first place. That is the caring mindset that we should have. That is the mindset of investment. So we're going to uh, read, wow, I can't believe I didn't have it open already. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we'll just do it later. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 5 later, and I'm just going to establish for you, or reestablish for you, this simple premise. And that is that family is the proving ground for this restorative process. Family is the proving ground for imitation. You remember the concept last week, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is what Paul said. This is who you are to be. We are all to be students, apprentices of a master painter, a master artist. And to do this, we have to imitate him. And when we have our children, when we have young people, even when there are older people who need direction, we are to invite them to imitate us as we imitate Christ. And family is the beginning of that. Family is the proving ground for imitation. It primes us for discipling relationships to do so. What a terrible thing we have in this world, in this day and age, that we think that our responsibility for our children is not to teach them to imitate, but instead to free them to be their full selves, their best selves. And so there are parents out there who say, no, I'm not going to teach my child what I believe. I'm going to allow them to find out for themselves. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. Children need discipline, as Adam talked about. Adults need discipline. Human beings need discipline. So, we need clear guidelines, clear walls. That's what keeps us from walking off cliffs, right? That's what keeps us from doing stupid things like putting our hands on burners. So what we do is... We create a ground for imitation within the family, which then gets transferred into discipling relationships when we get older. And most of what we know how to treat each other is built from the ground up 
by the practice within the family. And we take what we have learned here within a family and we bring it out into the world through the church. So if we go to Titus 1, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, it says, I left you on the island of Crete so that you can complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. This is what Paul is saying to Titus. An elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. And I'm going to skip down a little further. It says, rather he must enjoy having guests in his home. He must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. The very first qualification for an elder in the book of Titus is what? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. The qualification actually is a blameless life, but it's the way that it qualifies it is being faithful to his wife right? He's being faithful to his wife, having a family that listens to him and respects him. So you see here that we have the, the standard for imitation isn't, I have this degree, I've gone to this school, so on and so forth. The standard for leadership in the church has nothing to do with those things. It has to do with how a person applies their love within the family. So that is the beginning of of what discipleship looks like. Again, we find this in 1 Timothy 3, when it says, again, 1 Timothy 3, 2, he must be faithful to his wife. In verse 4, it says, he must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him, for if a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of the church of God? Again, we see this standard presented. The idea that good discipleship is intermingled with being good family is carried into the idea of biblical discipleship, as we've talked about. Remember, Paul commands us to imitate God by imitating him. Ephesians 5, 1 through 20. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. Live a life that is filled with love. Following the examples of Christ, he loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let's skip down further to verse 8. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord, so live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness, but instead expose them. Imitating God's design is central to our identity. As Paul talks about imitate him as he imitates Christ, he goes on and he talks about God's design. And he talks about what that is supposed to look like. And there are very specific things in that. It's to be introduced in our families, carried into our relationship with God, practiced in the church, and extended into the watching world. Let me say that again. Imitating God's design is central to our identity. It is to be introduced In other words, began in our families, carried into our relationship with God, our personal relationship with God, practiced in the church, and extended into the watching world. And ultimately, this means that we imitate Christ. And the way that we do this is to live as people of the light, as talked about in Ephesians 5. Remember what it said in Ephesians 5? It said, Once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of the light. For this light within you produces only what is good, right, and true. 
Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. So, imitating Christ means living in the light. Living as people of the light. Remember what John 1 says. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Everybody remembers that? That's what John 1 says. Everyone always brings attention to the revelation of Jesus as the logos, or the Word of God. But if you read it again, if you go a little bit further past that, it says in verse 3, so in the beginning was all of that, right? And we get to verse 3, and it says this. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus is the light of all men. So when we follow him, we also become light to all men. In other words, we need to live as the children of the light. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says this, You are the light of the world. You, the believers, are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Children, we just sung a song this morning. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. You know what that is? It's the basket. Hide it under a basket? No, I'm going to let it shine. That's what's being said here. That is what this is from. Or this, yeah, that's what this is from. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Notice the example here talks about the light shining in a house. Right? Where do we have our families? We have our families in the house. The good deeds are in the house. That's where they start. And what does the light do? The light exposes the darkness. What were we told in Ephesians? That to live as children of the light is not simply to live as children of the light, but it is to expose the worthless deeds. This is why it's important to live like Christ. Because our life becomes a light in the darkness. It's the city on the hill calling all people to God. And I want you to think about what a beautiful example this is of the way in which God loves us. He places his love in the desert of our lives, right? High above. He places it high above the barren desert landscape that we, that we sinners call an oasis. And he does this to cure us of our hunger and thirst with a bread that will not run out, with a drink that will not run out. And so as we recover from that harsh desert environment that we've been calling an oasis, but really we've just been dying of hunger and thirst, and we're now sitting in this city that's on the hill, that's lit up, and we're looking into the barren wasteland, what is our responsibility but to come before God, join with him, and also reflect that light out there? To be the lighthouse for the boats that need to come in, to be the city on the hill. And so we're called then in this way to invest in each other, to be the light in the darkness, to be a city on the hill to them 
But our light, of course, is merely an extension of Jesus, and so we learn to shine by following Jesus' example. And this is the nature of the light of all men. As it says in Ephesians, this is the nature of Christ's light. To live a life that is filled with love, that is exemplified in self-sacrifice, in self-sacrifice for the redemption of sins. In other words, our light, the light of Christ, is not altruistic. And what I mean by that is, it doesn't just simply want to do good things. It specifically is reconciliatory in nature. Bringing people, doing good things in order to bring people back to where they need to be. So it's not just good for the sake of, quote-unquote, good. That's arbitrary and makes no sense. We are to live a life that's filled with love that is exemplified in self-sacrifice, the redemption of sins, not out of pure altruism. We are to live as people of the light, producing only what is good and true. That is exactly what Ephesians says. Only what is good and true. Carefully determining what pleases God, not taking part in things that don't, but instead exposing them. So our investment, our caring, is supposed to be sacrificial. It's supposed to live a life that produces good things, and it's supposed to expose bad things. That's what our caring mindset should look like. A life filled with love that is self-sacrificial towards God's redemptive plan, produces what is good and true, is selective about what it participates in, and exposes types of quote-unquote loving behavior that are ultimately worthless when held to the light of God's plan for redemption and restoration. That is what true loving behavior is. But chapter 5, of course, is prefaced by chapter 4, which ends on this note. Ephesians 4.31, Get rid of all bitterness, anger, rage, harsh words, slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. So let's go ahead and adjust our picture of a loving standard as found in Christ to include also being kind, being tender-hearted, forgiving out of respect for the love which God has given us, for the forgiveness which God gave to us first. So the Christian picture of love is is this. It's what Ephesians says. Ephesians tells us that to live a Christian life is to live a life of one, self-sacrifice. Two, a life that produces good works. Three, a moral heart and a voice that matches it, calling out evil, doing good things. Four, an attitude of kindness. Five, a heart that is tender towards people. And six, an ethic of forgiveness. And we tend to have a disproportionate focus, of course, when we look at these things. The majority of Christians will focus on the last three. Be kind and tender-hearted toward each other, forgiving them just as Christ forgave us. That's where the majority of Christians will focus. But of course, we should be focusing on the full six. Notice also that love is less about what you do here, as talked about last week, but rather what motivates you to do it. God's love is predicated on why. It's not predicated on what. It's not predicated on how. And this is the reason why discipline that is loving is difficult, of course. Because it is a means to an end. Its purpose is to restore and reconcile, not simply to affirm or reject a person. That would be easy. That would be arbitrary and feeling-based. 
want a person to be good, we either accept or reject them. We can't do that. We have to have a reason for doing that. And it has to be reconciliatory in nature to God's redemptive plan, to God's original design, not simply affirming or rejecting. So God's love is not arbitrary, and it's not mindless. It doesn't affirm because love. And it doesn't reject because tough love. It's purposeful. How many times have you heard somebody say to you that we need to be loving because love? I have. I've heard people tell me that we're supposed to care because God is love and, you know, love. That's what love looks like, caring. Scripture is not um, void of content like that. It's not arbitrary. As the scriptures say, Hebrews 12 Five through six. My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't give up when he corrects you, for the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes each one he accepts as his child. The Lord disciplines those he loves. That's really hard to understand if our concept of love is arbitrary. It's not hard to understand when we say that that concept of love is not arbitrary, but in fact is for a point. He loves you, therefore he corrects you. As we focus on having loving affection for each other, which is what we're talking about today, if, if we are to have loving affection for each other, we have to get past the concept that loving affection and corrective discipline are somehow mutually exclusive. I'm going to say this again. As we focus on having loving affection for each other, we have to get past the concept that loving affection and corrective discipline are somehow mutually exclusive. Do you guys know what that term means? It means that the two things cannot exist together. Mutually exclusive. Loving affection and corrective discipline, in fact, can exist together. They're not, in fact, mutually exclusive. And let's go further and say that you cannot truly have one without the other. Proverbs 13, 24 says it much better than I could. It says, those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Not just don't love their children. Hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. So affection and love are not without discipline. On the contrary, they are with discipline. And only in this full context can we even be able to discuss affection and how we invest in each other. As Solomon says in Proverbs, it is in fact a fact of, of affection that we care enough to discipline. You can't have affection without discipline. Remember what the scripture says about the light of all men that we are supposed to be. We are supposed to expose the darkness and the foolish things. Not to simply accept those things. So here is a major difficulty to overcome in our mindset of being loving. Let's make a truth statement. Corrective discipline is in fact a viable form of affection. This is a truth statement. 
a presupposition, something that I want you to walk away from this for, for the future, to walk away from this sermon, and from now on, we are all going to say this to each other, unless you find it to be unscriptural, in which case you'll need to prove that. We're all going to say this to each other. Corrective discipline is a viable form of affection. The major dissension to the relationship between discipline and care is that the harshness of discipline can be misused and abusively applied. Of course, somebody can abuse that. Oh, you're saying that I'm supposed to discipline? Oh, well, then it's good when I beat my children. Of course, that's not what the scripture says. That's not the biblical standard. Let's go back to scripture to see what that might look like. To do this, we have to look where love is, of course, tested, right? Which is where? Where does love start? Where does affection start? Where does biblical discipleship start? In the home, the family, right? So, Colossians 3.19 says this, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Those two go hand in hand. Love your wives, do not be embittered against them. The word there for embittered is pakrino. It means to make bitter in the stomach. It means to visit with bitterness. In other words, you step away from that situation, and when you're coming to them the next time, you are already angry about what is going to happen in that interaction that hasn't happened yet. Love your wives and do not anticipate bitterness. Ephesians 6.1, one one of my favorite ones. Of course, my dad stepped out of the room for this one. (laughs) But Ephesians 6.1 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word provoke is perorgizo. And it means to rouse somebody's wrath. It means to provoke them, to to purposefully jab at them until they become angry, to poke a sleeping bear. So fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Instead, what do you do? This is instead, but bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. You know what that means? What that's saying is, is that when you have a problem with your children, you don't do things on your merit to bring them to who they need to be. Instead, you bring them to the scriptures, which will convict them, not provoke them, convict them. Colossians 3.21 says something similar. It says, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will lose heart. The word there for exasperate is erethizo. It means to stir them up. It means to arouse their anger, to purposefully irritate them, to take the pot and stir it. So, what have we found? Care cannot come out of our own bitterness. This is, this is my answer to somebody who says, yes, I can discipline my child and still be loving. It's got to look a certain way. Let's be clear. Care cannot come out of your own bitterness. You can't work out your own issues on the person that you're loving. Care is not an excuse to battle someone. 
Care does not provoke a wrathful response. Caring is not a competition for control. This doesn't mean, of course, that you can't offer rhetorical evidence that somebody is not in control. Believe me, I've done that myself. When somebody says to me, oh, I am in control. And it's like, no, you're not. You have to be able to tell somebody what the rules are, the boundaries. But it doesn't start, it doesn't start slinging accusations. Its objective is not self-serving. When we go to the book of Micah, chapter 6, that says, what does it say? It says, he has told you, O man, what the Lord requires of you. To love mercy and to walk humbly before our God, right? But before that, the Lord says, who of you would bring an accusation against me? Let me bring an accusation against you. So, of course, there is room for rhetoric. There is room to say to a child or a person that is subordinate to you, nah, let's wait a second here. But it's not you vying for control. It's not you arguing about control. I'm going to tell you a little bit about my son here, Joseph. He, uh, he does this thing. He's having this stage. I don't know if he's here, but he's having this stage of development where when somebody corrects him, he'll look at them and he'll say, I'm stronger. And he'll say it over and over and over. You tell him, Joseph, stop this. And, you know, stop doing that. He'll look at you and he'll be like, I'm stronger. I'm stronger. I'm stronger. And I'm having to have this conversation with him. It's very developed for the record because he understands what's going on, right? He's picking a battle. It's very developed. But I'm having to have this conversation with him about the fact that I don't care if you're stronger. And I'm not in control because I'm stronger, although I am. I'm in control because I know how to keep you safe. And because God gave me control of you. It has nothing to do with strength. It's important to teach our kids that distinction. Letting them understand the distinction between care by their own strength versus care by ordination of position and the qualifications of God and his standard versus their own agency or ability will be important for their success as men in their own families and ultimately the church. We're not battling for control. Care does not incite bitterness. Care is not the starting point for resentment. Its goal isn't to create an enemy. Its goal is not to establish control. It is to do right by the control that you already have established. It doesn't need to dominate. It doesn't need to prove its power. I also have a story about this. In my own ministry, in counseling, I'm not going to go too far into it, only to say that there was a certain point where I became aware that there were certain people who couldn't deal with that because they always wanted to fight for control. And so I had to establish boundaries for myself that said in counseling, I'm not going to help somebody who will not cede their control. For the record, that's modeled in Christ and his apostles. Matthew 7, chapter 1, verse 6 says this, don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. 
Don't throw your pearls to the pigs. They will trample those pearls, and then they will turn, and they will attack you. You can't control every situation. Those whose control is not given to you to control, you should let alone. If you're trying to control a situation, and they will not let you, let them be. Dust your feet off, as the scriptures say. Do not throw your pearl before swine. I didn't say that. Jesus said it. It will only cause those people to turn and attack you. Our care and investment in people needs to be pure in motive, reconciliatory in purpose, rather than a method of gaining control, and respectful of when a person just simply doesn't want to be cared for. We need to judge rightfully, we need to judge humbly, and we need to judge boldly. And yes, we are called to judge each other. How do we not cast our pearls before swine when it's our children who are out of control? Do we just move on from them? Well, honestly, to a degree, yes. There is an age where you are no longer responsible for their care, and you no longer have control of them. So in so much as you have control of them, you have a responsibility to do right by them. But once you don't have that control, you have a responsibility to recognize that you don't have that control. And that's honestly one of the difficulties of parenting, is recognizing, okay, my child is now in control. I can't keep holding on to them this way. Because what will that do to the relationship? It will cause them to turn on you and attack you. So let it go. But take heart, of course. Because Proverbs 22.6 says this, If you start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Deuteronomy 4, 9 through 10 says this, But watch out, be careful never to forget what you yourself have seen. Do not let these memories escape from your mind as long as you live, and be sure to pass them on to your children and grandchildren. Never forget the day when you stood before the Lord your God, where he told me, summon the people before me, and I will personally instruct them, and then they will learn to fear me as long as they live, and they will teach their children to fear me also. The point is, do your part. Present God's shining light correctly, and that means holistically, answering all the things that I had said earlier last sermon. What were they? Dealing with a child's one pursuit, a person's one pursuit, which is the truth. Dealing with their categorizations of the truth. That's the two. Dealing with, what's three? Yes, their tests. Their tests for reality. Four, dealing with their questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And what is the meaning of good and evil? And lastly, five, dealing with the life disciplines that spring from all of those things. Dealing with the holistic person. If you do your part in holistically teaching your children, the scripture says they will not depart. Now those of us who've had children that did depart, was that your fault? Or was the scripture wrong? I would say nine times out of ten that it's our fault. And that we can look 
pretty clearly at where we didn't meet our children's need holistically. But that's okay, because we add to the fact that if we bring our kids to God, both Scripture and the Holy Spirit will work in their lives, and we can be sure that they're not in any danger of raising pigs from whom we should keep the pearls. And this is why the instruction is so important, too. Because many parents are thrust into a requirement of meaningful care, but they were never prepared for how to properly invest in others, in their families or otherwise. So take heart and pay attention. We can't go backwards, but we can go forwards with a new boldness and confidence in Christ. So let's get back into it. Ephesians 4.31, if you recall, talked about getting rid of all bitterness rage, anger, be kind to each other, be tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God through Christ has forgiven you. And I want to explore that a little more because that's really what today's message is about. All of that was just backstory. So here we're going to begin the message now. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> that's really what today's message is about, though, is looking at the concept of investing in each other in a loving way. What is the mindset of that? And that's really summed up in this statement, be kind to each other, be tender-hearted to each other. Well, what does that mean? Let's explore that. Let's get into the deep Greek. The Greek word here for kind is krestos. The word translates to the word in English, useful. Being kind means being useful? Yes. Being kind means being useful. And this is where it's connection to the idea that kindness is good. <laughs> comes into play. We, when we think of kind, we think good. Kindness is a positive, right? Well, whatever is useful is good. Right? Whatever is useful is good. And therefore, whatever is good is kind. So kindness is being useful. That's what that term means. That word, of course, also speaks to something's goodness as attached to its level of its abrasive quality. So something is of good use when its surface material is not abrasive. That's the word that's used in the Greek when it's krestos. It's talking about something as being kind when it's not abrasive on its surface. So think um, steel wool wouldn't be kind, right? But uh, silk would be kind. Therefore, if it is mild in terms of its harshness, it is good to be used. That's where this comes from. So kindness is an attitude of malleability. In other words, you have to look at what it's attached to. If kindness is attached to something that's incredibly harsh, then what is kind to that incredibly harsh thing is another incredibly harsh thing. If kindness is attached to something that's incredibly soft, then what is good for that soft thing is another soft thing. Kindness is an attitude of malleability towards being useful for the goodness of a person. A person is kind when another person can, use, can be of use to them for good. One might say then, what about someone who is harsh? Someone who's harsh to the point that it makes someone cry. And they're not good for anything emotionally to that point. And I would point out, this um, is an area, again, of understanding the value of discipline. Discipline, kindness, they work together because we're talking about what's good. Take, for example, harsh chemicals. Harsh chemicals are abrasive, and they're used to remove hard materials. 
So if you want a hard material to be smooth, what do you use with it? Harsh things. The Greek use of the word implies that these chemicals are kind to the object it's cleaning. Why? Not because they're nice, but because they're up to the task of removing the grime where a softer chemical wouldn't be. Was Jesus not kind when he called the Pharisees a brood of vipers? We know that Jesus is kind, right? He's Jesus. Jesus is good in every way, shape, or form. Was Jesus not kind when he called the the Pharisees a brood of vipers? Was he not kind when he called them whitewashed sepulchers? You know what that term means? It means a tomb that has been used before, cleaned out, and then painted on the inside to look like it's new so that they could sell it new, which, by the way, is a violation of Jewish law because it's unclean. That's what Jesus called the Pharisees. On the contrary, of course, Jesus was, in fact, kind, but he was using terms which were harsh. Why? Because Jesus was malleable, depending on what his audience needed. So when speaking to the Pharisees, he was kind to them by using things that would evoke conviction in their spirits. But when talking to the tax collector, or the person who was dejected from society, he said, Woman, where are your accusers? Oh, they're not here? Okay, well then I won't accuse you either. See, he was malleable, depending on what was useful for his restorative purpose. Kindness is not mutually exclusive to tough love. We like to think it is because we have a way of looking at things in this day and age. But kindness is not mutually exclusive to tough love. In fact, when tough love is appropriately applied, it is, by definition, the very meaning of kindness. Let me say that again. When tough love is appropriately applied, it is, by definition, the very meaning of kindness. What does it mean to be tender-hearted, then? We're supposed to be kind and tender-hearted toward each other? What does it mean to be tender-hearted, then? Well, the Greek word for tender-hearted is eusplaxinon. It's a combination of the words you and splaxinon. You is something done right, something done well. And splaxnon is the innards of a person, their guts, their visceral and internal organs. And when you put these two together, you get eusplaxnon, which translates to a deep visceral and internal feeling deep in your gut about a person's innate value as being a good thing. So being tenderhearted is a gut-level depth of certainty about someone. That's what it is. It's not affection. If I'm tender-hearted toward John, for instance, that means I have a gut-level certainty about him, which then dictates my behavior toward him. And that certainty is defined by Christ. It's not affection. And if I'm going to be kind toward a person who I am tender-hearted toward, then that means sometimes 
out of my tenderheartedness for them, I'm going to change my level of harshness depending on what that person needs. In other words, being kind and tenderhearted does not mean being nice. Here's some examples of doing what is useful for each other so that we can understand how it was used. Just a few, because we don't have a lot of time to go into all my examples. We don't play with people's uh, exceptions. No, expectations. We don't play with people's expectations. This is an example of being kind and tenderhearted towards someone. So Luke 11, 9 says this. This is Jesus talking. And so I tell you, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See, the example that Christ gives is of what affection should look like. God gives freely to people who sincerely ask for something. God doesn't play with people's expectations, and God equips people with his Spirit to continue to meet their needs. That's affection according to Scripture. That's what loving people is according to Scripture. That's what caring is according to Scripture. It's not being nice. We don't hold the good things, of course. We don't withhold the good things from our children. In another version of it, Matthew, he says essentially the same thing. But then directly after he says that, the part about Heavenly Father, good gifts that are asked to him, he says, then do to others what you would like them to do to you. Yep, that's the context, of course, of the golden rule. The context of the golden rule has to do with how we live as Christians in response to how we treat each other. Makes sense, right? It's all about how we treat each other. But that treating of each other has nothing to do with being nice. It has to do with meeting people's needs. God gives freely to people who persist in seeking him out. And he gives us many things out of his affection for us. Here's a few things that God does out of his kindness for us and his tenderness. And again, I'm just going to quickly go through them. He he gives us a fresh start daily. I would encourage you to look through the scriptures to, to prove this. But he gives us a fresh start daily. He gives us purpose. He gives us creation itself. He gives us the ability to worship. He gives us peace. He gives us a full life. He gives us hope. He gives us the Bible, revelation. He gives us our Savior. These are things that are done out of his kindness and his tenderness toward us. And therefore, might I say, these are things that you would be giving to people if you were kind and tenderhearted toward them. Instead of a smile. Smiles are good. This is better. Investing investing in people with love is twofold. God's affection is given in two parts through Christ. 
He gives us an example. A life of self-sacrifice to the will of the Father. A life that produces good works in accordance with the will of the Father. A heart and words that match it and that of the Father's. And then he gives us gifts. A deep affection and attention to our value. For instance, with the Samaritan woman, or the woman who is caught in adultery, or the children, or the tax collectors, or his soon-to-be widowed mother. Imagine that on the cross. The last act that he performs is making sure that his mother's taken care of. Making sure that she's taken care of. Not saying, Mom, I love you. You did such a good job in raising me. Blah, blah, blah. You know, all that stuff does matter. It really does. But at the end of the day, she needed to be taken care of. Because without a son in that society, and without a husband in that society she would have been cast off. And so what does he do out of his kindness and tenderheartedness? He makes the last thing that he says to the people, his last act, to give her a new son. He gives us good works. He gives us miracles He gives us the fulfillment of prophecy. He gives us a fulfillment of sacrificial laws so that we don't have to sacrifice anymore. He gives us his death on the cross. He even allowed Thomas to touch his body to give us a way out of our doubts. And he gives us forgiveness. His promise of intercession and the seal of the Holy Spirit to be our comforter so that we can be sure of the truth of our salvation. He gives us a command to not only be forgiven, but also to forgive others. And this is what love is. This is what actual affection is. It's a twofold process of loving God wholeheartedly and loving man tenderheartedly. Too often we want to take these parts and we want to separate them into two things, but really they're one thing. You can't have one without the other. Both of these are encompassed encompassed in love. Affection and love and kindness in caring is not nice words. Affection and love and kindness in caring is not a nice tone of voice. It's not a nice facial expression. It's not even a nice physical touch. Again, those things are nice. But this is better. Those things can be nice, but they are arbitrary. They're not reliable. They're based on the standards of various social constraints and expectations. And God's kindness may at times be harsh. And God's kindness may at times be even silent. And God's kindness may at times even be difficult to swallow. And God's kindness may even accentuate your insecurities. God's kindness looks as much like Christ dying for our sins as it looks like Christ coming on the clouds of heaven to bring the wrath of God upon those who would continue to devote their lives to rebellion against him. God's mighty hand 
can, in fact, hold as much as it can crush. The same hand can crush that holds, that hugs, that heals. The same hand that healed the blind man was the same hand that built a whip. Last week I said that Christ did not come for a single, mono, a single monosyllabic purpose. That Christ's purpose was holistic and dynamic. Guess what? You are to imitate Christ. And therefore, your love cannot be monosyllabic. Your caring for each other, your kindness, your tenderheartedness for each other is only going to be showing that person God if it is as dynamic as God. So you want to do that in a way that has a nice tonality? Do it. But don't do that at the expense of exposing the darkness. Don't do that at the expense of producing good works. Don't do that at the expense of truly loving. Because ultimately, you can't invert the process. We are to be first loving God with our whole hearts and second loving man tenderheartedly. So a question. As we look at our love and affection and kindness, is it a one-note song? Has it divided God's love into two separate Mutually exclusive realities. Or does it have all the chords and all the glory and all the beauty of God's intended symphony? What song are you singing here? Go discuss. <laughs>